1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer.
0: And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: To get a read on a generation, take a look at what they spend their money on. We go shopping to find that Generation Z and Millennials are broke, woke, and complex, and they've got quite a taste for luxury items there was an unusual figure present at the birth of modern satire, a mathematics prodigy who started at Harvard, aged just 15. We look at the small, but profoundly influential collection of goofy songs by Tom Lehrer.
2: But first, I've been in Lima for most of the past month. I lived here in the 1980s when there was hyperinflation and terrorism. And the atmosphere has reminded me at moments of that period.
1: Michael Reed is a writer at large for The Economist.
2: For much of the day, the city is fairly calm. There are some marches from poorer areas towards the center. But almost every evening for the past two weeks or so, there have been clashes between groups of mainly young protesters with staves and stones and slingshots and Molotov cocktails, battling the police who have shields and tear gas, but have orders not to fire live ammunition after the deaths that occurred elsewhere in the country earlier. So, the situation is still pretty uncertain in Lima.
1: Demonstrators install barricades on the roads as anti government protests escalate in the southern region. The Peruvian government.
2: In parts of the rest of the country, it's much worse. I mean, there are still around 60 to 80 points on highways, mainly in the southern Andes, that are blocked by the protesters' roadblocks. Some several mines are closing or have closed. Machu Picchu, which is the famous Inca Citadel and Peru's main tourist attraction, has been closed for the last ten days or so. And there has been violence. I mean, since December the seventh, when this started, at least fifty-eight, probably more, people have died as a result of the protests. Forty-six of them civilians in clashes with the security forces. Now, why is all this happening? Well, it's a political protest, essentially. The protesters and much of the country is very unhappy with the interim president, Dina Boluarte, and the demonstrators want the resignation of Boluarte, the closure of the Congress, an early election, and they want a referendum on a constituent assembly to write a new constitution.
1: Now, we spoke to you back when Dina Boluarte took power, but remind us of the story. How did that come to pass?
2: Well, before she came to power, the country was being run by Pedro Castillo, a rural schoolteacher and trade unionist backed by the far left who governed very incompetently and, according to the prosecutor's office, corruptly. And the country was in a situation of great chaos. Then suddenly, on December the seventh, he announced that he was unilaterally dissolving Congress, that he would create a government that would rule by decree, and take over the judiciary.
3: A se dictan las siguientes medidas: disolver temporalmente el Congreso de la República e instaurar un gobierno de emergencia excepcional. Y hasta que se instaure el nuevo.
2: It was widely rejected, including by some of his own supporters. And the Congress voted to impeach him swiftly and appointed Dina Boluarte as his successor. And he was arrested.
1: But if even his own supporters didn't support that and Dina Baluarte ended up in office, uh, honestly, fairly, what's the problem? What What is the protest about?
2: Well, when he was ousted or ousted himself, he still had about 30% approval in the country, which is quite high for a Peruvian president after a year and a half. And particularly in the Andes, a lot of Peruvians of indigenous descent identified with him. They thought he may have been useless, but he was one of us. And secondly, at the outset, Miss Poluarte implied she would govern the whole of his term, and she allied with the right, and that annoyed people. So now the polls suggest that about three quarters of the population think Boluarte should resign. And the Congress is particularly hated, partly because it's very, very fragmented. And it basically spends its time opposing the president, not passing useful legislation. And Congress people are very well paid. And that riles people. And that also means that some of them are reluctant to call the early election, which many Peruvians want.
1: So apart from those issues, objectively, what has been Ms. Baluarte's response? What's her government been like in the midst of all this chaos?
2: Well, it has made some fatal mistakes, literally. I mean, at the beginning, the army and the police appear to have used live ammunition against the protesters who were trying to seize the airports, and that's how people died. That caused a lot of anger. The government has made that worse by failing to organise a swift and credible investigation into what happened. So that has been one of the main problems.
1: But is it clear to you that she has a a firm hand on the situation, on the government, on on what's going on?
2: No, I think her situation is very precarious, actually. And there are divisions within the government between her and her prime minister. Some think the prime minister is turned to the right of a hard line. There are certainly demands from some sectors of the population for a tougher approach and to use the army to clear the roads, which are being illegally blocked. I think she realizes that that would be a mistake. and She is not terribly experienced politically. And uh, she's pretty friendless, really.
1: And as we've spoken about before on this show, Peru has faced instability a lot, a number of presidents in recent years. Why is that?
2: Well, that's right. And it's mainly because of a fragmented party system, political polarization, a weak president and a weak state, I think, that hasn't been capable of delivering many benefits for the majority of Peruvians. Until recently, until the pandemic, the economy grew very fast and poverty was reduced very quickly. Things have got tougher with the pandemic. There's a drought as well. And some of Peru's historic problems are surfacing. And one is the issue of race and racism. I think most Peruvians have only started to recognise that there's a problem of racism. And a lot of people in the Andes feel it. But the main issue is that people don't feel connected with the political system. And that's not easy to address necessarily. I mean, there are... More than a dozen parties in a small congress of 130 members. A lot of them are kind of businesses that hire themselves out to a candidate who pays them as money. There's not much ideology in Peruvian politics, and there's not much policy either. And the state's ability to implement policies is fairly limited.
1: And given this unstable situation, a president who doesn't seem to have a firm hand on things, a greatly upset people in protests that don't seem to stop, how do you see this being resolved?
2: Well, I think the only immediate way out, and it's not a guaranteed way out, is an early election as soon as possible. The Congress did vote in December on the first of what has to be two votes to have an early election in April 2024, which would be two years early. But now I think there's a general acceptance that the situation is so dangerous that the election should be held sooner in the second half of this year. In an ideal world, there would be political reforms as well, but that's unlikely. It's proving very difficult to actually get the necessary votes for an election towards the end of this year. With part of the right saying it should be held according to the normal timetable. And part of the left say they will only vote for an early election if there is also a referendum on a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution, which for much of the Congress is not acceptable. So it's on a bit of a knife edge as to whether or not there will be approval for an early election. And if there isn't, then, well, one government advisor told me that he feared pandemonium.
1: Michael, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about
4: I'm in Westfield Shopping Centre in London. It's one of Europe's biggest malls, and it's pretty popular with Gen Z shoppers. So that's anyone between the ages of about 10 and about 26, which just happens to include me.
0: Oreo Gunbi covers consumers and retail for The Economist.
4: I'm near lots of clothes shops, and I'm looking for some Gen Zs, some people with shopping bags in their hands. Okay, we've got this guy coming down the escalator. I'm going to get him. Sorry, excuse me. I'm a journalist. I want to ask some questions about shopping. Do you have five minutes? Uh, no, thanks, I don't have. OK, no worries. Are these guys over here, it's quite a big group. That might be tough. I'm a journalist. Can I ask you some questions about shopping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, have a good day. Guys, I'm a journalist, and I want to ask some questions about shopping. Do you have five minutes? We have one hour, no problem. Oh, perfect. OK, what's your name?
2: My name is Pashtun.
4: Your name is what, sorry?
0: All right you've clearly made a valiant effort to get young people to talk to you while they're out shopping. What were you looking for?
4: Well, young people are an interesting bunch and businesses are intrigued. They're trying to figure out what they want and how they shop. But I think they're an important group to understand because they're gonna define the new era of consumerism.
0: So what sets them apart from other generations?
4: So financially, Gen Z and the younger millennials have it worse than the older groups and their parents. And they know it. One survey found that only 42% of Americans think that young people will fare any better than their parents. They don't think that they'll retire or own homes either. And so all this uncertainty about the future seems to be encouraging impulsive spending. They have really expensive tastes, but apparently not very much money. Because really, if another global crisis is around the corner, then what's the point of saving?
0: So which kinds of brands are benefiting from this young, screw it mentality?
4: Well, young consumers have different priorities. They're more likely than the rest of the population to use their phones to pay for shopping, as Zara and Malachi told me. Do you pay with Apple Pay? Yeah, Apple Pay. Apple Pay. I use it a lot. It's really bad. Research has shown that they're put off if there are only a few ways to pay. So it's the brands that are really innovative with their payment options, online marketing and their niche or unique styles that benefit the most. More than two thirds of 18 to 34 year old Americans spend four or more hours a day glued to their phones. And they're being marketed to on every single platform. Because what we have is this really competitive attention economy. What other stuff like informs your purchases? Like trends. Yeah, life is trending, yeah. And how are you finding out about these trends? TikTok. (laughs) TikTok, yeah.
0: I probably see stuff I like on Instagram or online, social media even ads at times. So I kind of know what I'm after before I go anywhere.
4: If they don't get what they want and how they want it, young people are happy to try something new. According to a McKinsey survey from October 2022, nine in 10 Gen Z and millennial Europeans had changed how they shopped, where they shopped, or the brands they bought in the last three months.
0: And what are they buying?
4: They're buying the kinds of things that older generations consider optional, discretionary spends. So like wellness, luxury goods, those kinds of things have become essentials. Malachi and Zara were both pretty keen on wellness brands.
0: Yeah, I I have a lot of wellness and self-care
4: products. Yeah, Makeup shops like Kiko, MAC, Urban Decay. Morphe, Pashka. It also seems that young people are turning to posh brands at an even younger age, as they're looking for things that will set them apart. like Gucci. You like Gucci? Why do you like Gucci? That
5: one is nice brand, this well.
4: Most Gen Zs will make their first luxury purchase at an average age of 15, which is even younger than millennials, for whom it was about 19. 45% of Europeans in their teens and early 20s said that they're going to make some kind of splurge in the next three months, whereas 83% of baby boomers, so those born before 1964, said that they wouldn't dare.
0: And Ora, you said earlier that these younger consumers have it harder financially than their predecessors. So how are they doing all of this with less money?
4: Well, they really like buy now, pay later apps. Some of them are buying these high-end items as an investment, and then trusting them to hold their value even during times of crisis. Even if you don't like them, you can then trade them on secondhand sales platforms like Vinted and Vestiaire Collective. And that kind of rental attitude is a pattern. Gen Z and millennials prefer subscriptions and shared access to outright ownership of lots of products and services. It's why you see support for clothing rental platforms like Rent the Runway, but also streaming services like Netflix. Even Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime subscriptions are one of the most important services in Gen Z and Millennials' baskets, coming second only to phone bills, food, and travel. But when looking at their purchases, young people appear also to be a bit more values-driven.
0: What sort of values drive a Gen Z purchase?
4: So some of these values are centered around identity, so think race, gender, sexuality, and the like. But others also stem from things that young people care about, like climate change and the environment. Gen Zs, for the most part, worry more about climate change and natural disasters than any other generation. And in fact, young people in emerging markets are even more fretful of what's going on with climate, according to a survey by Credit Suisse. And this has become increasingly evident in their shopping choices, too. Do you care about, like, sustainability? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, sustainability
0: is a big one. You can even tell the clothing if it's non-sustainable and fast fashion. It kind of just, like, breaks down quickly. But, yeah, the environmental impact is obviously great for it as well. So that's my main one is when I'm buying brands as well, sustainability.
4: The high-end clothing brand Patagonia, for example, has been identified as a Gen Z favourite in the rich world. Even though it's more expensive, they consistently promote climate change awareness. But then when you actually take a closer look at young people's shopping habits, you see that these values fall apart quite quickly. How so? Well, young people also have an appetite for instant gratification, which is fueling some really un-green consumer habits, as their brand favorites sometimes reveal. Tell me about your favorite shops, your favorite brands. Uh, Primark. Why do you like Primark? Because it's cheap and affordable. How about you? I like Zara. Why? It's, it's very good quality and the prices are decent when it gets to the sale. Shein. <laughs> what would you say? Shein. And why do you like Shein? Because it's nice and cheap. <laughs> Shein is a Chinese clothes retailer that is effectively the fastest of fast fashion. It consistently tops surveys as a Gen Z favourite in the West, despite being criticised for waste. Its fashionable garments are so cheap that you can basically wear them once and throw them away. But the young generation has virtually invented quick commerce. What's your name? Ava. And how old, how old are you? And so when I was speaking to Ava in Westfield, she basically told me that it's more important to get it quickly than that it's good quality.
3: I think my parents, they would like to spend more money focus on the quality.
5: And for me, it doesn't really matter. Just, you know, just focus on what I like, what I really, um, Neat, or just
3: like
0: that,
4: yeah. So young people, like everyone else, are contradictory. Because like everyone else, they're only human.
0: So what does all of this mean for the future of commerce? How does a business interpret and respond to what these young people want?
4: Well, I think businesses need to understand that as a really diverse, rapidly changing group, they're very difficult to paint with a broad brush. Defying neat categories is precisely the point of this consumer group. They all want to stand out. And so I think businesses need to engage with these shoppers as individuals with their own particular expectations and take risks and be experimental in their strategies because you never know with this lot. It just might work.
0: All right. right, thanks so much for your time today.
4: Thanks for having me, John. Satire
2: is...
3: Probably as old as civilization. it's been around for as long as there was anything to satirise. But if you wanted to find a point of origin for modern satirical comedy...
1: You are no doubt familiar with songs about the old lamplighter and the old umbrella man... You could
3: argue for 1953 and the recording of Songs by Tom Lehrer. David Benin writes about culture for The Economist.
0: When the shades of night...
3: Songs like The Old Dope Peddler perfectly capture how this quite unlikely figure
0: dope peddler spreading joy
3: wherever he goes. changed the sensibility of the comic song, and I would say of comedy in general.
1: you get down on your knees fiddle with your rosaries bow your head with great respect and genuflect genuflect genuflect
3: mr Lera has spent no more than 20 of his 94 years working in show business and he estimates that he recorded only 37 songs and performed 109 concerts
1: You can't take three from two, two is less than three, so you look at the four in the tens place. Now that's really four tens, so you make a three tens,
5: regroup, and you change a ten to ten ones.
3: Mr. Lera is a professional mathematician. He began studying mathematics at Harvard at the age of 15. He started by writing parodies of the popular song styles of the day to amuse his friends, and there was nothing unusual in that, but he was really good at it and he started bringing in topical references.
5: seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but...
1: The idea is the important thing.
3: In the 1950s, there was a distinct new comic sensibility on the rise in America. It was erudite, quick-fire madcap and it had a insolence to it, and it cloaked the whole thing in kind of uh, dumb guy shtick. That package endures to this day. People who made a great success of it in the early 50s were television presenter Steve Allen, the comedian Stan Freeberg, the creators of Mad Magazine in particular. Laro was different. For start, his academic knowledge set him apart, and also his scientific bent. The elements saw him whizzing through the periodic table to the tune of I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General by Gilbert and Solomon.
5: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neptunium, germanium, and iron, amoricium, ruthenium, uranium... Which
3: places domain, him squarely and in and and the lineage an, of radium, classic comic songs.
5: and indium and gallium... <gasps> and iodine and thorium and thulium and
3: thallium he preempted the diy spirit of the independent label boom by decades he paid 15 dollars to record a 10-inch lp and he sold it on campus and by mail order eventually setting up his own record company his songs tended to the mordant and often the macabre.
5: Spring is here, a is here. Like
3: Poisoning pigeons in the park is a long-time favourite of many people. You could see his kind of crossover I with somebody like Charles Adams, the cartoonist who created the Adams family there. The like Elvis Presley, soon after him, Mr. Lehrer found his music career curtailed when he was drafted into the army in 1955. but unlike Elvis Presley, he emerged sharper and stronger and into an environment that better suited him. Musical comedy was in fashion. Mr Lehrer came from a liberal Jewish family, a secular family, and he was very much left-leaning, but he was always happy to mock what you might call his own side, usually the mark of a good satirist and often a great one. In the mid-1960s, there was an attempt in America to promote something called National Brotherhood Week, bringing all kinds of different people together and encouraging them to, if not love, at least tolerate one another.
1: I'm sure we all agree that we ought to love one another, and I know there are people in the world who do not love their fellow human beings, and I hate people like that. <laughs> it includes uh, infamous line.
3: The
5: Protestants hate the Catholics And the Catholics hate the Protestants And the Hindus
1: hate the Muslims And
5: everybody hates the Jews Speaking from my own experience, the
3: people who find that line funniest are Jewish people. He was a master craftsman at putting snappy words and tunes together.
5: Hi, my name's Adam Kay. I used to be a doctor. I'm now a writer and I'm also a Tom Lara superfan. There's aspirin, adrenaline, and also aminophylline, and better adenis, and and, and rapam- There's something magical about the wordplay in his work. He's the master of the patter song. And if you're up the duff, you would best avoid There's lithium. I'm not sure that people under the age of 40 necessarily know who he is or know anything more than poisoning pigeons or the elements. On. So I thought, how great would it be? to take a show of all of his songs to the Edinburgh Fringe. The topics that he dug into and autopsied are absolutely timeless. And when I was playing with his lyrics, I was careful to only mess around with topical references rather than try to better his wordplay because there is no way of bettering his wordplay. He is the best at it. Or sodom all and get a job in orthopaedic surgery.
3: Many present-day comedians, and in particular musical comedians, may not be aware of who Tom Lehrer is. But for all that, they do owe him a profound debt. And if they or anybody else wants to hear how influential he's been and how he perfected his form, then happily they can download his catalogue for free from com because he has recently relinquished both the copyrights to the songs and the recording rights. Selling out is this is probably a good thing if it encourages people to listen to him more because so he has it seems slipped out of the minds of the public and also of other comedians, probably because he hasn't been much of a presence since the 1970s. And anyone who wants to know just how well this form can be done should be listening to him.
5: Selling out I'd rather call it compromise Is easy to do Sometimes you have to close your eyes It's not so hard Being rich is no disgrace To find a buyer.